Thank you, Pastor David, for leading us in worship. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Today we will examine and continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount, specifically our study on the Beatitudes as we look at the next Beatitude here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. And today we look at where Jesus addresses the topic of spiritual appetites. We're going to look at just one verse today, and that's what we did the last time. And as we look at the Beatitudes, it's really important to slow down and look at this great portion of Scripture, verse by verse, word by word, and draw all that we can out of it uh, as we look at the whole Sermon on the Mount. So let's read our text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that they seek to preach your word. Father, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit, God, to enable me, God, to speak that which you have spoken, Father, to your people. God, that you would use the word today to exhort, equip, encourage, comfort. And Father, I pray that you would use your word today, God, to open up blinded eyes. Father, to open up hearts that are hardened. God, those who have not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who have not repented and put all of their faith and trust in you, I pray that your word that you would be glorified in your word being the power unto God and the salvation today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to start the sermon by asking you, what are your deepest desires? What's your deepest desire today? What is the one thing that you long for the most in life? Is it comfort? Is it financial security? Maybe it's peace within your own home? Do you long for and desire someone else's approval, man's approval? Do you long for and desire romance? Do you long for and desire fill in the blank? What do you desire today? What do you desire most? I'd like to exhort you to be honest with yourself today and to think about what are the things I desire most in life? Our desires will ultimately determine our behavior. You may have heard orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, meaning the right believing will inevitably tend to right behaving. But somewhere in between there, you have your desires or your will. When you have a certain worldview, when you have certain beliefs about who we are, who God is, why you're here, that will shape your will and your desires, which will ultimately lead to how you act right or wrong. Some years ago, a professor at Ohio State sought to determine what is it that people desire most in life. It was a very secular study, but the results were not surprising the study was done and involved over 6,000 people. And the study found that 16 basic desires 
These 16 basic desires were found, and, and these desires dictated one's actions and behavior. 16. So I'm going to list them for you, and they're in order, okay? Order of the most to the least. These desires are power, independence, curiosity, acceptance, order, having order in life, saving financially, Desire was honor, idealism, social contact, family, status, vengeance was on the list, romance, eating, physical exercise, and tranquility. Can I get the mic turned up just a, just a bit? Thanks. Notice what were the top two? The top two were power and independence power and independence what was not on the list righteousness jesus said blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that's nowhere on the list see the desires that people have these 16 desires or whatever your desire is people have these desires because they want them that's that's their will. They want these things, and they ultimately believe that by having these things, it will make them happy or even make them blessed. Jesus here in our text gives his disciples the antithesis of what it means to be happy by worldly standards or to be blessed by worldly standards. In fact, the entire set of these Beatitudes are antithetical to the world's ideas and the world's systems of values that tells us what should make us happy or what makes somebody divinely blessed. Today, we're going to look at the fourth Beatitude, and it's important to know as you look and as we study the Beatitudes, we have to first take a macro view, which we, we did in the sermon itself, but we have to take a macro view of the Beatitudes themselves before we take uh, a micro view, so to speak. The Beatitudes as a whole, there's no commands. The Beatitudes describe a true Christian. The Beatitudes describe a true Christian, and Jesus is telling his disciples who is in the kingdom and who is not. So they describe a true Christian. If you look at the Beatitudes, each one just gives a description and then gives a promise on who these people are. And if you just look at them, I'm going to skip the first part of each Beatitude, the blessed part. Starting in verse 3, it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which, by the way, the kingdom of heaven, the last Beatitude, he says the same thing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Next one, for they shall be comforted, for they shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the they? These they are the ones who are truly born again believers in the kingdom of God. Because Jesus is not giving commands but describing a true Christian, we must interpret these Beatitudes in a way that examines our own life. 
examines our own spiritual standing with God. Now, many Bible scholars have attempted to provide different outlines of the Beatitudes. And in my study, I I outlined them in this way. The first two Beatitudes are the inner working of a believer, of of, of the salvation of that believer. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Then the next, uh, Beatitudes 3 through 7, are the outworking of salvation, or the fruit. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We'll look at that today. Blessed are those who are merciful, who are pure in heart. This is the outworking, or the fruit, of somebody who is truly saved. And then the last one or two, depending on if you combine the last two into one, are the consequences of salvation. What are the consequences of of a true believer who is in the kingdom of heaven, who amplifies these first seven Beatitudes. Now let's look at our text today, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I want to give you three points and some practical application in this one text. First point is this. I think it's obvious, but it's a true Christian has a never-ending, all-consuming, lifelong quest for righteousness. A true Christian has a never-ending, all-consuming, lifelong quest for righteousness. Now, I'm going to break that down because I don't want you to think what it doesn't mean, okay? But let's look at the text. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed, we've gone over this before. It means, in its most basic sense, to be happy, but in its biblical sense, it means really to be divinely favored by God. It's not just a subjective happiness. Hey, you know, you'll be happy if you're merciful. You know, you'll have some some joy if you are gentle, verse 5. No, this is a divine blessing upon those who fit the description So it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, those two words in the Greek, hunger and thirst. I want to get technical because it's important to understand what Jesus is saying here. There are two verbs in the Greek, and they're parsed in the present active participle. Okay, present active participle. Now, Pastor Swan's gone over participles. A participle is a a verbal noun. It's describing somebody, a noun, that's, that's, uh, that's having some sort of action, okay? So he says, blessed are those who hunger. Uh, uh, a more expanded way to translate that is blessed are the hungering ones. You see, there, it's a verbal noun is how that's parsed in the Greek. And not only that, it's in the present active. I mean, it's, it's ongoing, So a a better way to describe that is, blessed are the ones who are constantly, actively hungering and constantly, actively thirsting for righteousness. Now we also got to take a minute to think about what hungering and what thirsting means in first century. We don't understand, as Americans, what it means to be hungry. We don't understand as Americans what it means to be truly thirsty. We were around some friends the other day, and the, one of the little boys looked at me and said, I am starving. 
Mommy, can I have a cookie? Uh, he's right around, and there's no one here. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was cute in one sense, but it, it, it epitomizes what we don't know about what it truly means to hunger and thirst. You know, if, if you ever fasted, which I'm ashamed to say I haven't fasted as I have at some points in my life, but if you ever fasted, and not just like a fasting solid foods, I mean, if you ever gone without eating for a day, I mean, for me, like, 9 o'clock rolls around, and I am, like, hunched over with a headache. I am, I am I'm not doing well, and it's 9 a.m., okay? And part of that is because there's no caffeine either. But we don't know what it means to hunger. We don't know what it means to thirst. This word in the Greek does not mean the hunger that you and I experience when we miss breakfast. The thirst in the Greek does not mean because we've been out doing yard work and we're parched because we haven't had water in an hour. That's not the hunger and the thirst that Jesus says, and that's translated in the Greek. The hunger here in the Greek is to the point of starvation. It's an ongoing lack of food to the point where you are impoverished. And the thirst here is the point to severe dehydration where you're experiencing weakness and sickness. The hunger and thirst that Jesus is talking about here is to the point where your entire life is consumed by desperately trying to find food and water because it is how you will survive. You and I, suffice to say, I'll take a guess, we've never been in that situation. Maybe you have, most Americans have not. To illustrate this, if you look at Matthew chapter 4, just flip back over. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. You think Jesus wasn't hungry those 40 days? But the hunger here is the same word used in the Greek in Matthew 5, verse 6. Imagine going without food for 40 days. That's the type of hunger that Jesus is talking about here. You don't have to flip there, but another way to illustrate this is Matthew 15, 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. These people were following Jesus. They didn't miss a snack. They didn't miss a breakfast. They had gone three days, and presumably most of them hadn't ate those three days. But they were following Jesus, and Jesus didn't want to send them away hungry because they were hungry and they might faint on the way. That's the type of hunger that Jesus is describing in Matthew 5, 6. Uh, a, a real life way to illustrate this is you got to kind of go outside of the United States and go to, into third world countries where you have no food shelters, you don't have a safety net, no government safety net uh, in some of these countries. And some of you may have been to some of those countries and seen the hunger with people who wake up and have no provision, have no way of knowing what they're going to eat or if they will have clean water 
to drink that day. They are literally consumed. Their life is consumed with surviving by finding food and by finding water. Brothers and sisters, Jesus uses this metaphor of extreme hunger, starvation, and thirst to describe a true believer, a true Christian. Now take that picture of the hungering, the thirsting, and bring it into the text. Jesus uses it to describe how a believer hungers and thirsts, not for the vital physical necessities, but for the vital spiritual necessity, and that is righteousness. He says, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who have an ongoing, all-consuming, hungering, and thirsting for righteousness. Now, what is this righteousness that Jesus talks about? Well, the word in the Greek is dikaiosune. Uh, I believe Pastor Swan mentioned this last uh, week. Dikaiosune means to be equitably right. It means to be just, and it means to be perfect. And it's often used throughout the New Testament to describe the righteousness of God and the righteousness imputed to a sinner through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4, where Paul quotes the Old Testament in Genesis, speaking of Abraham, and it says Abraham believed God, and it was counted or credited to him as dikaiosune, as righteousness. It's a God declaring a sinner to be righteous, not based upon their works, but based upon the righteousness of Christ. Takes Christ's righteousness and applies it to the sinner's account through faith and faith alone. That's dikaiosune, that's the perfect righteousness of Christ. But it's also used in a general sense for something that's perfect, the, the righteousness of God. God is holy, God is perfect. Now, Jesus could have been referring in our text to the justification part of righteousness. He could have been referring to the, the one-time act through faith where, Jesus, where God imputes the righteousness of Jesus to a sinner's account. Justification. However, I believe in this context, and with the verbs being in the active and a participle, I believe that Jesus is not talking about the righteousness that comes through justification, but I believe he's talking about the righteousness that comes through sanctification. I believe he's speaking about the believer's desire to live a sanctified life, to be like Christ. This is illustrated in the book of Philippians. Turn with me to Philippians. Paul in chapter 3, speaks of this, starting at verse 12. Paul, in talking about the righteousness just before that, in verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but a righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 12. Not that I have obtained it, the it is the righteousness, okay? I've been declared righteous, but I haven't become, I'm not fully righteous, I haven't become like Christ. 
Not that I have obtained it already or have become perfect, but I press on so that I may hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. He says in verse 13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. The, the righteousness is what he's talking about. But listen to what Paul says, middle of verse 13. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul here uses some very strong terminology. He says, the one thing I do. This was Paul's one desire. This was Paul's one most prioritized, motivating factor in life was, he says, to forget what lies behind, knowing that I'm not condemned, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But he says, reaching forward, and then verse 14, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. In the context of that passage, Paul, the goal that Paul had was to become like the one who saved him, was to become like Jesus Christ, was to grow in his sanctification, was to become that which God had already declared him to be, righteous. Does that describe you, brothers and sisters? Does that describe you? Is seeking righteousness a priority in your life? Is seeking to become like Christ even matter to you? Are you just apathetic and indifferent? And if it happens, it happens? Or can you say like Paul, this is the one thing. You might have desires, and we all have desires for peace within our family, to raise godly children, uh, to honor those in authority, to love others. But is your one overwhelming desire to be like Christ, to become what he's already declared you to be. You see, when you come to Christ, he declares you to be righteous based upon the righteousness of Christ. But what happens is the believer then has a pursuit to become like he's already been declared and spend all of your life to become like Jesus Christ to become like God has declared you to be. Notice back in our text, it doesn't say blessed are those who hunger and thirst to do good stuff. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to do good things so that other people can see them. It's not what the text says, does it? It says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what is righteousness? What's the one person who epitomizes the perfect righteousness of God? It's Jesus Christ, is it not? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be like the Savior who purchased them with his own blood. Amen? Second point. This all-consuming quest for righteousness only comes by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. This all-consuming quest, this hungering, this thirsting for true righteousness only comes by the transforming work of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
This is not something natural, friends. All of these beatitudes are not natural characteristics that anybody's born with. I want to recall Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 says there's none righteous, not even one. There are none who seek for God. For all have turned aside, it says. Together they have become useless. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good, it says. There is not even one. Sure, they may, there may be many who seek after some type of righteousness. There may be some people who appear to seek to be moral and good people. But it's to establish their own righteousness and not for the glory of God. You know, in Romans chapter 10, Paul speaks about Jews who fit this mold where he says in verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Paul, in his desire for his Jewish brethren to be saved, describes many Americans and many so-called Christians that they seek to establish their own righteousness they didn't know about God's imputed righteousness. They didn't know that they could be declared perfectly righteous in his sight through repentance and faith in Christ alone. They establish, they seek to establish their own righteousness by their good works, by going to church, by reading the Bible, by doing humanitarian work, fill in the blank, whatever it might be. That is what many people fall into in today's American Christianity. If you are not saved and you seek to earn God's favor by establishing your own sense of righteousness, you will have never, you will never obtain it. And the problems with that, folks, is you only add to the wrath of God that's stored up for you on Judgment Day. To be unsaved and to be seeking to establish your own righteousness and your own sense of morals to earn any type of favor or credit with God. It only adds to the wrath of God that will be the only thing left for you on the day of judgment. Number three, Jesus promises to satisfy those who passionately pursue righteousness. And that's the promise in the text, is it not? Look, blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Or your version may, they shall be filled. This word in the original Greek, uh, filled or satisfied, has the idea of a fattened calf as an animal who has been fattened up to the point of there's no more room left. They are full. There is no desire for food left. And that's the word that Jesus used use here. They shall be satisfied. This idea that God will fill those who hunger for him is throughout Scripture. Scripture is, is, uh, is saturated. There probably are hundreds of texts you could look at, <clears throat> but here are a few. Psalm 107.9 says, For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul. He has filled with what is good. Luke 1.53, quoting the psalm, says, he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. 
in Jesus' similar sermon in Luke chapter 6, verse 21, he says, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Psalm 145, 19 says, He will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. And who can forget John 6, 35, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, it's important to know, in a way, friends, that when a sinner comes to Christ, he is ultimately fulfilled, as Jesus says in John 6. He is filled, he is satisfied because he has been, his eyes have been opened, and he's come to Christ seeking forgiveness, seeking mercy falling upon the mercy seat of Christ, hungering and thirsting, if you will, and God saves him, and therefore he is complete now. He's declared righteous. He is satisfied. So in a sense, the moment you come to Christ, in a salvific way, we're satisfied. And I hope you are today, if you're in Christ, that you are satisfied, knowing that whom God saves, he keeps, knowing that there is now no, uh, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But our text today, as I mentioned, there's an ongoing hungering. The hungering and thirsting never stops. It never stops for the believer. The believer is fulfilled in a salvific way, yet he still yearns. He still hungers and thirsts to become more like Christ. This points back to the active participle in our text. Yes, he is filled, but he hungers for more. And this is the great things, brothers and sisters. When you hunger and thirst for more righteousness, God satisfies you. God fulfills you. And then you hunger and thirst for more. And then God fulfills you. And God satisfies you. And there's that ongoing cycle. The more we yearn for him, the more we seek him, the more we seek to be like Christ, he fills us. And then we hunger again, and we thirst again. Not that we're not content, but we are not content until we truly become like Christ in our walk with him. Does that bear witness in your life? Do you hunger and thirst to be more like Christ and see your progress, and then you hunger and thirst for more? God fulfills you, and then you hunger and thirst for more? Does that describe you? Now, this may not always work out practically, does it not? I know for me, oftentimes, I feel like, wow, I feel like I'm worse right now. I feel like the more that I try, the more sin tendencies I have. I feel like sometimes I look back and I'm like, I think I'm worse than I was a year ago. Can anybody relate to that? It's important to know that it doesn't always work out perfectly as prescribed in Scripture. But what you also must understand, brothers and sisters, is if you're in the Word, if you are growing in the knowledge of God, if you're growing in the knowledge of how awesome and holy and righteous God is, and you're growing in the knowledge of how sinful and how deprived you truly are and can be, friends, you can have that feeling that, wow, I feel worse now. I feel like I'm further away from the holiness of God today than I did a year ago. And that's natural to have, friends. Okay, so you're not 
unordinary. You're not out of the ordinary and you're not that horrible Christian that you feel like you're worse today than you were because in a sense, the more we grow and understand the holiness of God, the more we realize we are further, further away than we thought. I know today I feel like I'm further away from the righteousness of God than I did uh, and I was 10 years ago because I'm growing and you, hopefully you're growing and you can see that. But in it, overall, your life should mirror the hunger and thirsting for righteousness. God fulfills you and you can keep on yearning. You keep on reaching out for him. You keep on pressing forward. You don't look behind. You repent and confess your sin and you press forward to the prize of becoming like Christ. So how does this look practically? I want to end here with some practicalities of hungering. What does that look like in a believer's life to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, our catechism question really sums it up in two aspects where it talks about sanctification being the work of God's free grace where we're renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So think about those last two terms there. To die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. There's a negative aspect to your sanctification. And there's a positive aspect to your sanctification. Die unto sin and living to righteousness. Well, I want to dive into that just a little bit more so we can understand that. So the negative aspect, dying unto sin, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, you first must know at your core that you have no righteousness of your own. If, if someone believes, if you believe that you have some little inherent righteousness in you, then there's no way, friends, that you can truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. Until you realize and you can say, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, that you consider all of your good stuff that you've done as animal dung, he says. Until you can be at that place, you cannot be at the place to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Or as Jeremiah said, your good works are as filthy rags in the sight of God. Until you realize that you have no righteousness, you cannot begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Second, one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is one who seeks to rid all of the sin in their life. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, verse 13. He said, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. He's speaking about eternally dying apart from God and suffering eternal punishment. But, he says, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live eternally. If a believer, all believers are sanctified, if you're putting to death the deeds of the body, the sin, you're putting it to death, you are a believer, you're lived. And look at verse 14, says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Is that your desire, friends, today? Is that your desire to put to death the deeds of the body, the sinful deeds of the body? Is that your desire, or do you even care? Do you even care if and when you sin? Do you not even realize that you, when you do sin, does it even bother you? 
when you sin? Does it even bother you when you are boastful in pride? Does it even bother you when you snap angrily at your kids? Does it even bother you when you disrespect your spouse or are embittered towards them? Does it even bother you when you lie or cheat or steal at work? Does it even bother you when you dishonor your parents' children? Does it even bother you? Do you even care? Because if you do, that's a good, that's a good sign. If you don't care, be warned, friends, young and old. If it doesn't bother you when you sin, if you have no internal conviction of your sin, my friends, you may not be a Christian. So not only does one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness seek to rid the sin in their life, a Christian also seeks to rid the things in their life that curb their appetite from righteousness. Not only does a Christian want to get rid of the sin in their life, they also want to get rid of the things that take away the desire for righteousness. Now, what do I mean? I mean things that aren't inherently sinful. But because you are so time-consumed with them that you have no desire to live righteously, you have no desire to seek and hunger for God. It's kind of like our children, the parents with little children. You eat at 5.30, are you going to give them a snack at 5 o'clock? Are you going to give them some crackers? Don't answer because I know some of you do. And I have too, but then they don't eat, right? Because they just curb their appetite with junk. What do we have in our lives? A, a believer who hungers and thirsts for righteousness recognizes those. Those things that aren't sinful, yet they're occupying so much of your time and so much of your heart that they're taking away the hunger and thirst for Christ. What is that, friends? What is that in your life? I can't say that they're inherently sinful, but if they're taking you away from God, absolutely. We need to have the mentality to get rid of those things. So what are those things in your life? Is it a hobby? Is it social media? Is it your work vocation? Are you so consumed with your work that it affects you and, and takes you from desiring and seeking Christ? Or do you have a special hobby that, that you're just consumed with? You know, I remember years ago, I'd been about 10 years, I had this, old, this, this CrossFit gym set up in my, in my garage. And I absolutely loved it to the point where it consumed my mind when I wasn't doing work, when I wasn't doing something, I was consumed with it. I was thinking about my next workout, and, and it was keeping me from desiring and yearning for God. And God brought me to repentance, and I had to sell all of it. I just got rid of it. I sold it all and didn't own a piece of equipment for about, I don't know, five, seven years. Until I can get that hunger and thirst out of my heart and focus on the things that God would have me to focus on. We all have those things in our life, don't we? I challenge you, brothers and sisters, to recognize those things and do what you can to get rid of those things so that God can inflame your heart to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So that's the negative. Very briefly, let's look at the positive. First, one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is one who makes sanctification a priority in their life. 
It's something that you're constantly thinking about. What can I do to get closer to God? What can I do to invoke the, the spiritual flames in my life so that I can yearn for him more and to be more like him and to be conformed to the image of Christ? Is becoming like Christ something that occupies your mind? Because Jesus says a true Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Maybe not perfectly. Maybe it's an imperfect hunger and thirst, but it's there. It's a deep desire that only the Spirit of God works in your heart, that's deep in your heart that you seek after. Second, in the positive aspect, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness put themselves in the path of righteousness. They put themselves in the path of righteousness. What do I mean by that? Well, I call these using the means of grace. If you want to be like Christ, you need to get in the river and get in the vein of where you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. How can you be conformed to the image of Christ if you're never in the word of God, if you're never praying, if you're never doing the means of grace? The Lord's Day Gathering. Pastor Swan hit this real hard last week, didn't he? That is, this is a means of grace. God uses the gathering of his saints on the Lord's Day, and he uses the preaching of the word to increase your hunger and thirst for righteousness, to conform you to the image of God. Not only gathering, but fellowship with the saints on the Lord's Day and off the Lord's Day. If you're spending your most of your time with people who could care less about becoming like Christ, where is your appetites going to go? Spend your time with people who want to be like Christ, who will encourage you, who will exhort you, and yes, sometimes, sometimes it's needed to rebuke you in a loving manner, in a challenging way. Should we never be around unbelievers? That is absolutely not what I'm saying. But when we are around unbelievers, we should be so geared up and we should have our spiritual armor on to such a point that we're going into that situation with unbelievers ready to love them and serve them and look for opportunities to be a gospel witness in both word and deed. These means of grace, personal devotion time, reading and studying the word of God, prayer, the Lord's Day gathering, fellowship with the saints, taking the ordinances seriously, the uh, baptism services, and when we partake of the Lord's Supper, these means of graces are these means of grace are priorities. These are priorities, friends, for someone who truly hungers and thirsts for righteousness. These are priorities, and if these haven't been your priorities, friends. I admonish you to repent, confess your sins to God, turn from allowing the things of the world to take your hunger and thirst. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Does this describe you, friends? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the, the kind that is described here in the text? Maybe not perfectly, but do you have a yearning to be like Christ? Do you have a, a yearning to glorify him in everything you say and everything you do? 
Friends, what do you desire in your life? I started the sermon with that, and I'll end with that. What are your deepest desires in life? What are your deepest desires today, right now? Friends, if this text does not describe you in some way, form, or fashion by the authority of God's word, you are not a Christian. Do you know Christ today? You know, later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do you know Christ? To know Christ, friends, is to hunger and thirst for him. To know Christ is to hunger and thirst for his righteousness. If you do not hunger and thirst for him today, friends, you do not know Christ. And I urge you, if that's you, to repent. Turn from believing you have some goodness in you and repent of your sins and turn to Christ and put all of your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. If you're here today and you know you've been redeemed by the blood of, of Christ and you know that you're putting your hope and trust in Christ alone, but you have not hungered and thirsted as you have in the past, maybe some things of the world has curbed your appetite, well, brother and sister, I urge you to confess this. Don't ignore it. Don't run from it. Confess it to the Lord. He already knows. Confess and repent of it and seek the Lord and cry out that he would grow your heart to long and yearn for him and for his righteousness. And here's the thing, friends. Don't try to do it on your own. When you seek him and ask him and confess, Lord, I, I have not been hungering and thirsting for you. You know, it's pretty sad, isn't it, that we got to ask the Lord to help us yearn and desire him more? I mean, can you imagine telling your spouse that? Hey, can you help me yearn for you more? I mean, that would be offensive, wouldn't it? But the point is, friends, is that when you confess to God and you, t and you seek him and ask him, Lord, change my heart. Help me to yearn for you and help me to long for you and to hunger and thirst for your righteousness. You're just agreeing with God on who he says we, you are because you have no desire in and of yourself. Whatever desire you think you have or that you have had, that's from God. The desire that you've had to wake up early to seek him, that's not your desire. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. So you have no right to claim. We have no claim. It's all to the glory of God because he did that. So friends, if you're in Christ and you've struggled with this, don't try to just all of a sudden hunger more. You have to seek God and ask him to change your heart, to allow him to change your heart, to hunger and thirst for him that you may long for him more and more and for his righteousness. Amen. May we be a people who the world sees, long, and hunger 
not to be a good person. But may the world see us as a people who long to glorify Christ, to long to be more like him, to become like him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you so much that your word is true, that we can hold fast to the promises of God. Lord, I pray for believers and unbelievers, Father, that are here today or listening by the live stream or by recording. Father, for the believers, Lord, that have allowed sinful things to beset them, I pray that you would help them to grow in their desire to rid themselves of their sinful habits, their sinful tendencies, their sinful poor attitudes. And God, those that are in Christ that have allowed the, the things that are not sinful yet have taken their, their, their seat upon their hearts in an ungodly way. They're, they're too occupied. They're, they crave these things more than they crave you, Father, uh, including myself, Lord. I pray that you would help us to have a heart to rid ourselves of those things where we can and to focus in and to confess those things to you. And Lord, I pray for those that aren't in Christ, God, that do not hunger and thirst for righteousness. God, that you would do a mighty work through the preaching of your word today, that you would open up their heart, their eyes, God, that they would see that they do not hunger for you, that they hunger for moralism, that they hunger and thirst for looking good in front of others, for man's approval, whatever it may be, God, I pray that you would open up eyes to, for people to truly see, God, the state of their own hearts, God, that you would bring them to salvation uh, by grace through faith in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in, in this local body, that those outside, that our neighbors and friends and family and coworkers, that they would see genuine believers who desire to love others and desire to honor their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even if it means offense, offending or losing friends, uh, but that we would do it all in a spirit of love and kindness and gentleness, Lord, we pray. Lord, may you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would please stand and turn to hymn 156, His Forever. Hymn 156. <clears throat> Jesus, friend of sinners, love me ere I knew Him. Drew me with his cords of love, tightly bound me to him. Round my heart to bind the ties that none could sever. For I am his and he is mine, forever and forever. Jesus, friend of sinners, what crown of thorns you wore for me, bruised for my transgressions, pierced for my iniquities, 
the wrath of God I've deserved was poured out on the innocent. He took my place, my soul to save. Now I am his forever. Jesus, friend of sinners, I love to tell the story. Redeeming love has been my theme and will be when in glory. Not, not death nor death nor life nor anything can ever separate Oh, thy love that will move. Yes, I am his and he for me. Amen. It is an honor to worship our Lord and Lord and King of Kings with you today. Um, before the benediction, I just want to invite you for a brief time of fellowship down in our Rogers room, which is down there to the right. I hear there are a few peaches in the room brought to you by the Dottorelli, so uh, feel free to come by and get a peach from uh, right there in their own yard. So I've tried to grow peaches. It doesn't, it doesn't work, so hats off to you. Uh, but yeah, it was a blessing to worship with you today. Um, I pray that uh, you have a blessed week, and I'm going to read Romans chapter 15, verse 30, 13, as our benediction. It is now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Be blessed. Have a good week. We'll see you next time.